And we are live. Welcome to episode 3208 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, December the 1st, 2022. And we have a special episode of live streaming podcasting today. I have three members of the Expert Council on, because I asked six, and three of them weren't pikers and showed up. We have with us today Nicole Sauce, Tim Toolman Cook, and Nicholas Ferguson. Uh, how you guys doing today? Awesome. I mean, it'd be better if there were two of me. We we're, we are on lamb watch right now, where one of the youths has told us she wants to have a baby four days ago, mm. and it's typical. So it was 20 degrees here last night, which seemed like the time it would drop, but it still hasn't. So That's usually how it is. Mm. Minus 25 here this morning, and uh, I got two inches, three inches of snow, so we were out since 4.30 clearing that, but it's done, and it looks like we're clear for a while now. It's, it's starting to get cold here, and I've got birds that are like, I sit now. It's like, no, you don't sit now. <laughs> no, I sit now. No, no. I sit on ceramic eggs. Okay, you can do that. You can sit on the ceramic eggs. Day before yesterday, we were actually running the air conditioner. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's going up and down like crazy here. I, I was a good husband. I ran out to the truck this morning for my wife since she had to pick the kids up. And started it and turned the heat, the defrost on because it was all frozen up. But two days ago, it was in the 80s. And I think tomorrow it's going to be 75. It's doing the yep. Yep. Yeah. Bitcoin roller coaster, man, with the climate. The that's, creep that's, that's that. how it works, right? Bitcoin's price affects the climate by making it go <laughs> up and down radically. That's, that's because of proof of work. So anyway, guys, um, thanks for being here today uh, because I still have no editing capability. I thought we could have an expert council show without me trying and failing to edit. Um, I wanted to start out with, though, uh, we'll be taking questions from the audience, of course, but since it's almost the end of the year, another year's over and a new one's about to begin, I thought I'd throw this around. What would you say your best accomplishment was this year and your biggest failure or disappointment or whatever? And we will start by putting Nicole Sauce on the spot. I always get put on the spot. Well, you're in the top well, of the screen. It's your own doing. It's my own. And I'm wearing the, the Bitcoin T-shirt today. So, okay. I would say the biggest – I had two really big personal successes this year. And the first one was that Self-Reliance Festival went from 150 people to 500 people and went from some, some of a – somewhat of a, you know, like, let's make this happen to a, like a real event that people want to go to which is super exciting. Next year we're doing two of them. And as a presenter, I made a lot of forward momentum this year. I let go of my notes completely. And that's made me a better presenter. And it's also, I feel a lot more confident in front of people than I used to feel. So I don't know what made that happen, but it just changed one day and that was it. So those are my two accomplishments. Uh, Biggest failure... It's the same thing. I am a very optimistic person, and this year I thought I could have a lot of courage, courage was my word of the year, and do all these things, and then it turned out I'm human and was very overcommitted, which caused me to become sick, but it also put stress on some of my relationships that are very important to me. So I would say my failure was not keeping the priority of some of my most important relationships which I have changed since I realized that happened. So that's it. Tim. Yes, sir. 
Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So many good things this year. I, probably our very first biggest success was we just bought 10 acres of land in Tennessee. And that is 100% because I listened to some, you know, redneck hippie duck farmer quite a few years ago and started my own business, which then turned into two businesses and three businesses. And we are self-sufficient and doing significantly better than we've ever done in our lives. And we decided our best chance to at least part-time walk to freedom was to buy land in Tennessee. So that was probably our biggest success for sure. And I would have to say, which sucks, was my biggest failure was not getting to Jack's workshop this year, which you guys can all razz me about. And it was a good thing, but a bad thing, but it really, really, really sucked. And I beat myself up over it for a while. But that that was one of them felt like I let people down, you know? So that, that was what it was. Nicholas. Man, <clears throat> my biggest success this year uh, – I've got several. I've been on fire this year. Um, personal life, work life. Um, had one of my biggest grossing months ever in September. Um, we got 800 plus fodder trees put in this year, which um, as long as I have the market for it, should be able to produce um, enough cuttings to gross about six figures, um, which is amazing. Um, working on a book, my biggest failure, man, I've, I've just been I'm burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. Probably my biggest failure this year, and for those of you who are hunters, you'll probably laugh at me, um, I missed two deer, and I didn't take any venison home. That's my biggest failure. All right. I guess I have to answer my own question. You probably do. So I'm going to start with my biggest failure. Uh, as, as Nick puts puts it, I planted it here. Uh, living here this year uh, on this property and dealing with our drought resulted in catastrophic failure on the property of multiple systems and having to pare down to a a single garden bed and a few wicking beds and things like that and deciding which trees got to live and which trees would most likely die. Um, the success is actually the same thing, though. When we actually looked at what didn't die, uh, when we were doing the work in the workshop, it was actually pretty impressive that a lot of the things did live. So as bad as it was, and this was bad, the fact that, like, there's where we did zero irrigation – any of the trees really survived at all, let alone, I'd say, 70% survived a 20-month drought sitting on 11 inches of soil on top of a rock slab. So it's kind of the, the same thing. Uh, within the business, I have another failure success with the same, right? So I did some things with Paul Wheaton, did some things with Nicole, John Bush, with some affiliate sales and all. Made a bunch of extra money this year and spent it on well pumps and computers, and other computers. So, like, all the windfall money that was supposed to go into the long-term stash, other than what, you know, accidentally bought Bitcoin, um, was pretty much spent as it was made. So it was one of those, like, you're better off having the money than not having the money, but all of, all of that windfall ended up backfilling everything, which, which means, you know, back to life being like a shit sandwich. The more, the more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. So, uh, but once you eat the bread, the bread's gone. 
So that was kind of my year so far this year, and I guess it's almost over. It's almost over. We do have some questions coming in, guys. Go ahead and, and ask any questions. We've got three members of the expert council and myself here. Uh, Steady Presence Farms says, our new focus for our property is setting up glamping tents for retreat space. I want to add more beauty to the areas we are currently weedy. My thought is to add G ground cover. Ground cover, okay. Uh, while I, we wait to add bushes and trees. Thoughts? Just got that one. So glamping sites. I think Nick, you're. Are you about to say something? Yeah, I was just gonna say um, one of the really quick growers. I don't know any anything about where you live, what part of the country you're in, but one of the really quick growers that um, will add a lot of um, aesthetic beauty um, as well as some some benefits with, with pollinators and things would be butterfly bush. Um, some places, some people call them invasive because they just grow so vigorously but they make beautiful flower spikes. Um, they're very low maintenance. Almost nothing bothers them as far as diseases and insects. Um, that's probably one of those things I look at first. Um, another couple things, it, you know, if you have the the capacity to get a, a sprinkler out there once a week or so, then going with something as simple as some some mixed wildflowers or just zinnias and things like that. You can throw handfuls of zinnias out and just get some uh, a sprinkler on top of them once a week or so, and you can have a whole lot of color and a whole lot of aesthetic beauty added to that for next to nothing, really. Those are just my off the top of my head. Yeah, I have two thoughts, too. Uh, depending on how you frame your camping areas, your glamping areas, you can stress how cool it is that it has a wild look. <clears throat> yeah. Because the wild look is not ugly. Yeah. It doesn't, or it doesn't have to be ugly. Uh, bulbs in many places can still go in the ground that come up in the spring, and that adds a lot of beauty, and they're not expensive. And they tend to do well. If you choose, like, daffodils do well with weed pressure. They'll actually yeah, push back well. some of the weeds, which is nice, and deer don't like to eat them, and they're pretty. But also, it's not necessarily bad to manicure areas of your glamping space. So I have hip camp camping on my property, and there's a trail you walk through the woods, sort of woods in air quotes, and then we have hammock camping in a flat area, and that trail plus the camping area, we mow, even though I try not to mow as much as possible here, and that makes it feel like you are in the wild, but without the annoyance of ticks crawling up your legs because the weeds are too tall. Yeah, if I was going to add something that I would say, like, whatever you want to do with vegetation, do it, but you know what is much quicker than vegetation is any kind of hardscaping? Yeah. And when I think lamping, I think not being in the dirt and not being in the mud because the dirt and the mud sucks because, you know, when I go camping, it rains. So I go camping or have workshops, it rains. So things like if you're going to do, like, wall tents with a deck, extending the deck out from the tent so there's an outside space that's out of the dirt. Yes. Uh, either a paved or decked around fire pit. Like, things like that yes. don't actually – because you're not trying to do something large. We're not putting in a 20-by-20 20 20 deck, right? We're putting in 
a small decked area or a hardscaped area, flat stone, something like that, so that somebody who's camping can have the amenities they expect with camping, like a fire or what have you, and not be in the mud. Because mud sucks. Like, that's the, the, the thing that sucks the most about camping to me is either mud or being cold and wet. Yep. <clears throat> Mulch paths. Um, that's something really quick, really simple, relatively cheap. You can get mulch delivered by the cubic yard. You know, you can get a whole dump truck load of mulch and, and put out some mulch pads. They don't have to be fancy, uniform size, dyed mulch. Just get we, we did it here, Nick. How long did it take us? We did what, probably a hundred and fifty foot of path, and we did it in fifteen minutes. No, you did it. No I drove time the at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no time at all, and it looks nice. Yeah, um, yeah, things like that, little little things like that. Um, quick growers that that you can throw out, like I said, the zinnias, um, morning glories, uh, crimson or scarlet climber, uh, crimson runner bean. You know, those are things that if you need to throw up a quick screen, a couple T posts, um, a cattle panel, and then you throw some of those things down there, and then you have a screen. So. Yeah, quick things like that. Hardscaping, that was that was a really good one. Yeah. Operation Eyesore, too. Many of us homesteaders are very guilty of this. I, I currently have, since putting the food forest in with Nick Ferguson's help, <clears throat> what I like to refer to as bucket oases. <laughs> so the buckets that we used are still in a couple of places staged to be put away. Are they away? No. So if you're going to do – and we're not open for hip camp right now. If I knew a camper was coming, there would be – probably two hours of the things I have staged in air quotes to be put away would be put away. Better would be if I just put those stupid things away now. Mm. But that's, that's, that's something I see on a lot of homesteads, the, the staged areas. There's probably a more funny name for that. Well, uh, the, one of those, those areas uh, <laughs> I affectionately call um, their resource piles. Um, <laughs> my wife calls them piles of stuff um, <laughs> I have them too uh, but, yeah my wife but, calls uh, them all jacks crap yeah yeah <laughs> so tidying that stuff up putting it away hiding it uh like like we talked about throwing up some screens to just hide that and and kind of make it disappear um those are those are some big ones cuz we can we can kind of just like glance past it and and ignore that it exists but someone else not used to seeing that every day walks onto the property that's the first thing they're gonna latch on to so next question from tom says tim are you moving to tennessee would we let a canadian move here would we really if it were only that easy although i suppose if you consider who's in the white house right now it'd probably be easier than previous uh but anyway no it so the plan is for it to be a vacation property for the time being. We're going to put a, you know, a four-season cottage on there and then some bunkhouses and spend more and more time down there. And it'll be a temporary vacation property until it needs to be more, if you know what I mean by that. So that, that's kind of our you know, get-out-of-dodge plan for sure. But we want to you – know, but wh- why buy something that just sits there and is unused? So it's definitely going to be somewhere that we can go down and hang out and – set up and yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it and probably make some money off it eventually too with something like hip camp or that sort of thing 
One step closer says, what are the best plants for gorilla gardening in North Texas Zone A? Nick, you're the plant expert. Man, the first thing that popped into my head was that uh, <clears throat> green-striped Kushaw squash. It is really hardy, really tough. M most things don't bother it. Um, and it's something that most people wouldn't look at and see as being food. Um, and if it's kind of a weedy area and you're just trying to get something growing there that'll uh, produce something for you and especially something that'll uh, that'll be easy to preserve, store, green striped kushaw squash. Um, another thing, I mean, geez, you could you could go get uh, a couple of sweet potatoes and throw them in a pot, cover them up with soil, let them sprout all over the place and then pull those slips out, and you could stick sweet potato slips all over the place. Nobody would, they're just a vine. Nobody would know anything there. And then you could just go back in the fall and dig them up. Well, that's a great one because it's like the number one landscaping ground cover in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Every place you go is covered in sweet potato vines. There are more ornamental varieties, but people don't know. Yep. People don't know. I think it, it, the zone eight North Texas is a big ass area. So That's the further east area. you go, the more uh, the less important drought tolerance is going to be, and the further west you come, the more important it's going to be. I just realized that like my feeling of being persecuted by the rain is is not invalid at all. This year, Dallas had eight and a half inches more rain than the Fort Worth side. They're eighteen miles apart. That's like a different rain climate zone, 18 miles apart. So my my claim about the drifting dry line has been proven. Um, so that, you know, like zone 8 here, what can you grill a garden here with? Dead trees. <laughs> <laughs> Cacti. You know, what we've seen actually survive really well, though, like uh, Nick mentioned, the squash, the Trombuchino squashes as well, incredibly yep. tolerant to pest pressure, uh, somewhat to drought. Basil does good here. It'll find a niche. Um, you got to water it, but mints are great. I mean, if you go into perennials, I think that changes everything, right? But when you say gorilla garden to me anyway, I'm thinking annuals because you're saying garden, not, you know, because then we can start grafting things onto like stupid fake pear trees and stuff like That's that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Why is my pear tree dropping trees? It's not supposed to drop, dropping pears. It's not supposed to drop pears. There's oh, actually a group yeah, called the Gorilla Grafters in, in California that yeah. do that. They literally and like they're considered a problem by the government. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. That's and if you're going to get into grafting, um, man, get get a get a good pear tree, cut some cyan off of it, and just watch a couple videos on YouTube. The first thing I ever grafted was a pear, my first graft I ever made, and it was bad. <laughs> pear is so easy to graft. If you want to even think about grafting, just try it. Just try it with a pear. You can graft it onto one of those wild pears. Um, the Bradford pears work just fine. Um, that would be something that would be really fun to just throw a whole bunch of... Uh, of pear grafts onto some, you know, uh, a weedy tree area and get a whole bunch of pears growing. All right. Next up, 
food by day. Tim, how do you yeah. patch small holes in a metal roof from uh, that we're reusing metal roofing? Oh, I read that different the first time I read it. Now I realize that they're talking about the holes from where they took the screws out before. So, <laughs> I mean, if you want to take the time and try to match it up with where it was, get yourself one size bigger screw. So typical metal roofing screws are um, a number 12, get a 14, and it'll bite a little better. And, of course, you want to, re you know, with better rubber uh, grommets. So that that's a start. <sighs> that's not always, you know, easy or even doable. But there's so many things that you can cover metal roofing with. You can go over it with a dollop of roofing tar. Everyone, it's going to look like shit, but you can do that. There is... One with a fiberglass. There's a roofing with a fiberglass in it. You could paint the whole thing when you're done with that, and it has, like, kitty hair in it that kind of overlaps and kind of hardens up over time. Or if you want to spend even a little more, there's an elastomeric cover that is like what you would put on top of an RV, and it basically hardens like a rubber, and that will seal all of it in. Um, if, if there's really big gaps, though, I would probably maybe put a dollop of roofing tire on it first and then roll a cover over it but yeah that's all there all it takes and then if you have bigger holes like maybe where a flange was same type of process but cut yourself a piece that matches the profile screw it all the way down and put some sort of uh either rubber seal under it and then over it just to give you some extra you know in insurance but yeah that's all there is and i would say like if you can do what tim said initially like mostly match it up and you had one or two straight holes I'm assuming reusing metal roofing, like we're not talking about a house, we're talking about like a chicken coop or an outbuilding or something. Um, that The stuff I recommend, uh, JB Weld, the JB Weld water weld, if you made a plug of that and pushed it from both sides, I can't see that ever failing. I have a fiberglass, one of my big fiberglass tubs that I have in an aquatic system that had a crack in it. I repa repaired that with JB Weld like three years ago. It's still holding I have an underwater return line that I want to cut off that I've plugged with JB Weld. That's been in there like seven years. So it may eventually fail, but if it's over a chicken coop, you just pop another goober back in it. I can tell you from experience that roofing tar lasts longer than silicone. Okay. Ask yep. me how I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got wet. <laughs> yeah. Because you got wet. I had, to re I had to relay my whole roof because they overlapped it the wrong way. And mm. it resulted in not a lot, but some holes where it just didn't work for the screw to go in the same hole. So. Ask me how I know that you can think your roof is leaking even when it's not at all. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this is this is pre-you coming to workshops. Nick probably remembers this. We had the one workshop where it got really cold even though it was early fall, like really cold. So some dude brought in, like, one of the giant, like, turbo super propane blower heaters, and but we only had the little... <laughs> cans for it so we had to run it for like 15 minutes and then turn it off for a while look who's look who showed up oh. anyway so um because it would freeze the tank up that has nothing to do with the leaking we were warming the shop so fast mm -hmm. it was causing condensation on the rafters and it looked like we had and it was raining outside and it looked like we had leaks everywhere oh no in the garage oh. and there were no leaks what's I'm like how did all of a sudden I got like eight leaks and it was all just condensation well John Pugliano has graced us with his presence John can you hear us can John. you hear me now John John's having connectivity issues 
I see him, but he's not speaking, so... No, he's frozen. Oh, his hand moved. He's moving. He's not making any... Wait, he's muted. He's muted? Oh, let's unmute him. You cannot unmute... He chose to mute himself. There he is. Oh, I'm in. I'm in now. Hey, guys, how are you doing? (laughs) Hey, hey. Good, man. I guess you got done with your old man doctor's appointment. I did. The old man, you know, has to get that arthritis checked on every now and then. All right, so let's keep going, John. We're going to just let you catch up with the rest of us. Uh, we were talking about gorilla grafting, and One Step Closer said he was thinking about some Jerusalem artichokes in the gorilla grafting. That's actually a really good one, don't you think so, Nick? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, any of those really hardy um, – man, I'm, I'm mind-blanking. I'm, I'm trying Ground to – nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, they like, they like water. If you're in East Texas – Do you like creek bank? Yeah. Yeah, if you've got some moist soil in East Texas, then I can see that, that working very well. Um, Nicole, you're in Tennessee, and you have so much water, I don't – it's Except for this ridiculous. year. Yeah, well, except for this year. Yeah. The best thing um, I did about that this year was arrange for access to a 16-acre pasture that wasn't mine when we brought sheep on. That was fantastic. <laughs> we didn't kill the sheep. <laughs> I think the artichokes are a really great one. One thing I would caution people with, though, is people think, well, if I have Jerusalem artichokes, then I have Jerusalem artichokes forever. They actually can kill themselves if they can. don't harvest some. They they will overproduce, and they'll choke themselves out. So you do have to do some harvesting if you want to maintain them. And then Renegade Butcher says, Seminole squash do awesome, East Texas. Great with press pressure, and it climbs native to Florida, used in the guild trees in Charleston. Uh, yeah, the Seminole pumpkin, that's that's another great uh, squash crop. Uh, recovering nice guy. Hi, all. What are your favorite ground venison recipes? I just did one, Jack. That sounds like Nicole. I know. Okay, so I have this awesome arrangement with a neighbor who hunts, and he likes antlers, and I like venison. And he likes electricity, and I have electricity. So he pulls a line off to his hunting cabin for me, and whenever he shoots an animal, he puts it in my, my outdoor fridge, and I process it. And we got two about two weeks ago. And this this year I ground a lot of it because people in the holler like ground meat. And I took 20% pork fat, 80% ground venison, mixed those together, and for each pound of that I did – one and a half teaspoons of sage, one teaspoon, no, two table, no, one teaspoon of salt. Sorry, I scaled it before I did it. About an eighth of a teaspoon of nutmeg, a, about a half a teaspoon of garlic powder, and one more thing. What was the one more thing? Oh, sage. So about two teaspoons of sage and mix that together, and it's a breakfast sausage-like flavor. And then, of course, salt, like I added pepper too, come to think of it. It was delicious, and I have probably 30 pounds of venison breakfast sausage from that. So, like, one of the best things I ever made with ground uh, venison was, was half uh, venison and half pork. And it was happened to be wild pork because I had a pig and a, a deer on the same hunt that year. And per about pound of meat, salt and pepper to taste, and then just real simple, a tablespoon of gochujang paste, which is the Korean fermented chili paste. So if you were making a pound of each, two tablespoons of that, that was it. We just mixed that together, made meatballs out of that. Um, for a binder, uh, today I would use pork rinds. Back then I was still eating uh, breadcrumbs. So something for a binder and make meatballs like that. 
my wife, who was always like, I don't really want to eat Bambi, like devoured those things. Absolutely devoured those things. One of my favorite things to do is uh, is to take well, – You have to get one first. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, 50-50 venison and brisket, and you grind those together. Ooh. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you just use that in place of ground beef. Anything that you use ground beef for, that makes the most amazing burgers. Amazing. This is ironic this question came up today because uh, today's item of the day is actually the STX Turbo Force meat grinder. Right? Oh. So, I mean, that can't be a coincidence, can it? That that. <laughs> <laughs> That would that would come up. I mean, look, it's it's really real. It's true. Nice. Right there it is, right there. So you got to get yourself a grinder if you're going to have ground medicine, medicine, folks. Don't forget to use spas. Had to throw that little commercial in there. We lost Nicole. All right, so we'll go without Nicole. Anyway, um, I think my highest use of ground medicine though is some form of form of sausage. Some form of yeah. sausage. So I mean. Like, that, we could do a show on sausage. Let's not do that. Moving on, Packrat says, thoughts on Gray Man Gardening, a la Calpy episode of Ursats in the Confederacy Jacket shared importance thereof today, plants and techniques. So do you guys actually think it's important to plant plants that people don't recognize as food at this point? I don't know if you have to try. Do you even have to try? I mean – have you ever gone to a grocery store and bought something other than peppers or tomatoes and watched the person who works at the grocery store try to figure out what it is? Like, does anybody remember the saga of the fennel that I wrote back when I still used Facebook? Cole Robbie <laughs> will do that, too. <laughs> but what, what he's talking about is in, in, in the Civil War, when the northern troops moved into the south and started burning everything to starve out the south, a lot of crops actually survived because the, the northern soldiers didn't know they were food. And one of the big ones that survived was cowpeas. They had never seen cowpeas, so they saw these fields of cowpeas, and they were just like, oh, it must be weeds, it's fallow, it's not worth worrying about. And there was something still to glean from the field that was edible. So that strategy worked then. I don't know if that's what we're preparing for today. Um, and I'm thinking on the scale that most people that listen to the show are growing, it wouldn't really be that relevant, but I think there's a lot of things that we grow for food that the average person doesn't have a mm-hmm. clue what they are. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, as, as long as times are, are normal um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a major gloom and doomer, but, um, you know, speaking specifically to this gray man gardening, if there's really a need to go, total gray man um and and the reason why you're asking this is because you know you want to be prepared for if times get really tough um then i would be looking at uh a lot of those things that we talked about with the uh the gorilla gardening um some of those uh hard winter squashes get uh look at different winter squashes that don't look normal they look ugly. The uglier, the better. If it looks really ugly, they're going to think it's not edible. That's why 
you know, all the veggies and the fruit in the grocery store looks as pretty as they can make it because, for some reason, first worlders think pretty means edible. Uh, so if you pick the ugliest, wartiest, nastiest looking hard winter squashes, um, that's something that's going to really store well. Um, cow peas, the uh, Jerusalem artichokes, sweet potato. Most people don't understand that a vine that you can just kick around and there's there's nothing there. Um, you know, most people don't understand that there's tubers underground. Uh, sweet potato would be great. Um, <clears throat> oh, shoot, there was a couple more. Oh, uh, here's one of the big ones. Um, anyone that knows me knows I am preaching fodder trees like crazy. White mulberry. White mulberry is edible. You can literally just cut the the shoots and the young leaves off and use them as fresh greens. They're high protein, high digestibility. You can cook them. Um, but the main thing is, you know, you can feed them to your livestock. And if you have sacks of grain, and let's let's just go down the, the full-on tinfoil hat, it's all hit the fan, and there's roving mobs of marauders looting and, and stealing, and you've got a garage with a ton of um, rabbit pellets, lay pellets in 50-pound sacks. That's an obvious value right there. That's, that's very uh, takeable. Uh, that's going to be viewed as something valuable. A whole bunch of freaking bushes out in the field is not going to be viewed as val valuable. Um, if someone were trying to make uh, hinder your ability to be self-sufficient and they see a whole bunch of freaking bushes out in the field, that's not going to look like part of what makes you resilient and sustainable. It's just going to look like weeds and bushes and mess. So going with something like that that's not only human edible but edible for livestock would uh, – would add a whole lot of resiliency to your gray man gardening totality um, if you're if you're trying to build out a plan for what do I do if? Although I knew, somebody asked I knew this me this lady, question. Oh, go ahead. I, I was. Gonna, I, I knew this lady in Salt Lake City. She was doing a Curtis Stone, um, you know, urban gardening type thing. And her, she was growing in her yard and all the neighbor's yard. It was a pretty rough area, Salt Lake City. And she had food grown all over these front yards. And, I, and it, was, it was a rough neighborhood. I said, doesn't this stuff get stolen or anything? She said, no. So they'll, they'll steal everything, but no one will steal the food. They, just, they, they don't want to take the time to know what to do with it. So they just leave. And she was growing tomatoes and corn and all kinds of things. No one bothered it. Yeah, I had this discussion right before the show in a comment chain. Somebody asked me <clears throat> if I'm afraid putting it out there on the Internet that I'm a prepper <laughs> for security reasons. And I was like, well, no, because if somebody follows me on the Internet and decides that there's so much of a crisis that they want to invade the hauler, I guess they can try. And they might even succeed, but I can't control against that. And at that point, I don't think it matters if I said it or not. Because if people are, are so desperate that they're willing to assault other people for food, it doesn't matter if they saw me on the Internet or not. They're probably going to start going door to door. Right. And at that point, 
it's not like they targeted Nicole Sauce because she has this really cool podcast. It's like they're just targeting an area. Well, That's what it, I think would happen. Do you really think that somebody's going to go down the, the death trap that is the Holler Road to go to Nicole Sauce's house? I've, there are kill, kill zones here. You know, I'm just saying, like, this whole idea that by telling people you're a prepper, you're making yourself a target is a denial of the reality of what a target is. Well, and, and the other thing is... we're at this level, we're talking about existence makes you a target. Yeah. And the target is the suburban giant neighborhood, you know, with all of the yeah. stupid people mm-hmm. that don't know how to defend themselves in the gun-free zones. That's 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 the target. That's well, the target. If, if we look at other examples where it got to the point where that was an issue, who came out the other side ahead? The people who raided or the people who figured out how to come together as a community right. and bring everybody up and figure out how to get food? Yeah, it's definitely the ones that stuck together. I mean, I had Selko on for, who lived through the Balkan Wars, and he was like, the people that raided didn't do really well during the raiding time, but when they did really bad was when everything kind of sort of got back to normal. And then all those people that did make it through as raiders just disappeared. They're just not there anymore. Nobody knows what happened to them. Nobody asked any questions. They just went away. You gotta that, think about that. The got, that got mixed in. That got mixed in with the venison meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to think about the mindset of of people that are going to take from others when times just get tough. I'm not talking about like your family is starving and and you're either going to watch your child die or you're going to go steal something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if times are tough and and people are looking to you know rip copper out of your out of your house or whatever. <clears throat> um, you know, the mindset of people like that, they're cowards. They're lazy and they're cowards. Yes. And and if you live somewhere that, you know, if it's like twilight or getting dark and you're driving along and you're looking to the left and right and you're expecting someone to be sitting there on a <laughs> on porch playing a banjo... Why does the banjo music always have to come into this? <laughs> well, you know, um, if you're somewhere that far out in the sticks, um, a lot of those more cowardly people get get very frightened. So, you know, I, I I wouldn't worry too much about that. It's the path of least resistance, too, right? I mean, yeah, there, yeah, and and I remember Amy Dingman said it a while ago. If, if things ever got that bad. You more got to worry about people in your neighborhood because yeah. they're the ones that are gonna, you know, travel a little bit. Ain't nobody gonna be like, oh wow, you know that Nicole, she has all this stuff. So let's pack it up and travel 45 miles out into the middle of you know where to raid her. Right? You're gonna go everywhere else because everything you do expends calories, energy, time, whatever. Nope. Yeah, I I, I have no worries of it either. So let's give John a chance to talk here because this is perfect for him. Wild Blue Whippets, and Nicole and I probably are the only people here that know what a Whippet is. Uh, is there a better time of year to change to a new financial manager, or does it matter? Doesn't it doesn't matter? I, I always tell people, do you even need one at all? You know, that's that's the uh, question I think you have to ask yourself. Do you need someone? Are they doing you any good? If they're not, get someone else. Learn to do it yourself. Dollar cost average. Yeah, I think there are times of the year to do things financially, but switching advisors really is not temporal. 
right? I mean, if, if, if that advisor would tell you that, then maybe they shouldn't be your advisor. Because <laughs> there are things that, like, I've learned the hard way. Like, ask me how I know not to do major fundraising for a company that's not actually fundraising that has to go down as revenue late in the year. Because I didn't get the whole year to dispose of the revenue and had to pay tax on it. Like, yeah. that's, that, that's things, like, you might want a good advisor or investment manager to help you make those decisions. But I don't think when you hire them. But, that's I mean, Go ahead. And, and even even taking funds, you know, you don't have to sell something to move it. If yeah, as long as you're not in something that's proprietary, you know, if you're at Schwab and you want to go to E-Trade or Fidelity or wherever, if you you can just generally electronically transfer it, it's called in kind. And if you own Apple stock, it goes over, and you can tell the new financial advisor, I don't want to sell that to the end of the year or whatever. You know, make any changes from a tax standpoint until the next year if, if you so desire. But, yeah, of all the things you would want to do on a seasonal basis, hiring or firing a financial manager would probably be one of the least things you'd want to do. I guess the only thing I could come up with is being this close to the end of the year, if you had a really good one, they might have spot, help you spot a, 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 an opportunity to create a deduction before the tax year ends. Like, one of the things I've always found interesting – it's, you know, we have the wash rule that says, like, if Jack is holding Nick Ferguson's stock, right, and then I sell Nick Ferguson's stock, I have to wait 30 days to buy it back, so I can't harvest the tax loss. But if I was holding the Nick Ferguson ETF and the Nicole Sauce ETF was basically the exact same uh, layout, because a lot of these ETFs and mutual funds are – they're the same. They have the same shit in them, but they're a different ticker. I could sell mutual fund A and buy mutual fund B and be in the same position and harvest the loss that way without having to get in the way of the wash rule. Am I wrong about that, John? I mean, I would think that would circumvent the wash rule, wouldn't it? Yeah, yet you have to be sure that they're not similar, right? So you couldn't go from Vanguard S&P 500 to Fidelity you know, S&P 500, but you could probably really? get a total – yeah, it can't be the same. It can't be essentially the same thing. But you know, to your po- to your point though, some of these things are so indistinguishable, they're just called another name, right? So you could you could make the argument that you're going into a total market fund, right? Or you could even go into a mid cap fund. Wouldn't make that for 30 days. It's not going to make any difference. You're still going to get all the market exposure. Um, yeah. I would make the point. It, it's a good idea. I think it's a really good idea to have a financial guy and a tax guy. Right, because generally, generally people are good at one thing, you know. So you're better to have a, a a really good financial guy and a really good tax guy rather than trying to get one that's a jack of both trades. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Our tax guy didn't show up today. Fine. Oh no. Yeah. yeah, he was invited. I think I invited. I'm probably a dick, and I probably didn't invite him, and now I'm being a double dick by saying I did and I didn't. <laughs> Uh, what do we got? We got ground venison. We did that one already. Thoughts on rechargeable batteries? K-Bonk. Thoughts on rechargeable batteries? Lithium versus nickel metal hydride. I mean, for the most part, lithium's better in almost every way, except for the one that really matters is where it comes out of your pocket, right? So, and they're getting better. I haven't compared the price in a little while. Sean would probably know. But, I mean, you know, lithium batteries charge faster. They're better in extreme temperatures, uh, longer life cycle, and um, but there's one thing about lithium-ion that kind of sucks is there, it, 
if 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 you're going to be uh, stationary, lithium ion is great. But if you have to transport them, there's sometimes some real transportation issues with them. You know, uh, as far as laws and regulations and that sort of thing. But when it comes down to it, honestly, it's it's the price. The uh, they're just significantly more money. They're better in just about every way imaginable, except that they cost a lot more or significantly more. So when it comes down to it, you know, do you want to go and buy more capacity for the same amount of money, or do you want to have longer life and a better quality product? Root cellar. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask: Is there a isn't there a weight difference between the two? Yeah, yeah, they're lighter too. You know, uh, lithium ion are lighter, so they're you know you pick them up sometimes like just the little rechargeables. You pick up some of them lithium, and they feel like like some kind of fake Chinese import. You're like, this has got to be cardboard. There's no way that's real. But yeah, they're yeah, yeah a so, lot lighter. So if you're if you're specking out a project or something, and you need it to be lighter weight, then that would be one of those bigger considerations. I, you know, just picking up different batteries that are about the same in uh, in capacity. To me, it feels like the nickel metal hydride or whatever are almost twice the weight. Oh, yeah, I think I, I haven't. Yeah, I'm sure they are because I mean, you just you take a double A for instance and pick one up and the mm-hmm. other, and it's like yeah, yeah like yeah. I said, they literally feel like there's nothing to them. Yeah, yeah. All right. Jed, root cellar design. Yesterday, Nicole and LBF were discussing root cellars and proper design and construction. Is there a trusted resource or proven cookie cutter design, or just it depends as usual? Um, so I had I talked a little bit about this yesterday, and I have another resource that I've since found. The first place I like to go when there is a new homesteading or off grid thing to learn about is a fairly old book at this point, and it's called The Encyclopedia of Country Living by Carla Emery. Carla Emery. Make sure you put Carla Emery in your search on Amazon. Keith mm-hmm. link coming soon, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> because there is another knockoff one that's not as good. And the reason that resource is so good is she has elected, or she did collect, she said now, real-world experience, definitions of things, and how to do things. And a lot of what I'm finding information-wise on the Internet are people making stuff up from what other people made stuff up about, which is which is why root cellaring becomes complex. The second resource I would go to are archives of Backwoods Home Magazine, who I believe is a sponsor of Jack's show. So you should totally be, first of all, subscribing to that magazine because that's great. And the reason they're a good – I know they've written multiple times about this topic – the reason they're a good resource for this is they do the research. They, again, they don't just make it up. They will have an article about root cellaring and an example of the root cellar. And then after the show on Wednesday, Jason Elliott sent me Nancy Bubel, B-U-B-E-L, wrote a book on root cellaring. So that's another resource. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm definitely going to check it out. Uh, there are definitely ways to research this topic and get the real information, it's better than making it up as you go. So I would I would do all three of those resources and check them out and then go from there. I would say that there probably is some variation by geography as well. So if there is an old homestead around you somewhere with an old homesteader that has a root cellar that was built in your area and it's still there and they didn't fill it in because it, it actually works, maybe go look at it. Like, and get an idea of, like, how did people build root cellars, you know, where you live? 
That would be my suggestion. And I think that's always a good suggestion is to seek out local knowledge, right? Find the, you know, if you're going to start a farm, find the oldest, crustiest, angriest, gnarliest old farmer there. And any shit you come up with, like, ah, I've seen that back in 66. Here's what you do. And he's almost always right. That, that's what I did where I, where I grew up. It was very common. We had There was an old guy up, up the cove from us, and he just showed me. In our area, it was pretty typical to just wall off kind of a corner, kind of a northeast or northwest corner in a basement, double insulate the walls, and then put venting top and bottom and insulate above. It was so simple. It was basically like a super insulated room. And that was very common in Nova Scotia where I grew up, and it worked beautifully. I don't have a lot of experience on this because all we had was a basement. And we just had a basement that was our, you know, root, you want to call it a root cellar. Uh, it was an outside basement. So the house that uh, I grew up in in Pennsylvania was actually the second house on the property. The first house was like a one-room house over a basement. And that became a work shed when the house that I lived in was built in 1890-something. And uh, we used that basement as our cellar. And that always worked fine. And there wasn't really, from what I could tell, there wasn't really anything that special or unique about it. It was just a hole in the ground surrounded by concrete. Yep. Uh, Jack, Jack in Pennsylvania, I bet you had a shanty. That's what we called it. I wasn't going to use that word because I figured you'd be the only person here that knew what the hell <laughs> I was talking about. Yeah, shanty. Yeah. Go down to shanty cellar and, and get a bottle of pickles or whatever. It was common. Did that cellar have any dirt contact at all? No, it was a it was a concrete floor uh, with a drain. Okay, the sides were also concrete or cinder block. Uh, it was rock. Okay, it was, it was freaking granite basically. Like doing, whoever built it, I guess it was my great grandfather or my great great uncle uh, built the foundation from rock, local rock, and then the bottom was poured. I don't know if it was poured when they built it or poured later though. Uh, my gut is it was poured later because of the drain, which was nice when we were cleaning deer down there because you could just hose blood down the drain and mm. God knows where it went. There's probably a big clod just under there still stinking today. Yeah, we had but something very know, similar in. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just say the oak was so old mm. and so thick in those joists that we had uh, basically room down there to hang one deer at a time. And we came home one day, we had three deer. So my grandfather's like, go throw a couple nails in the in the beams so we can hang all the deer up. <laughs> so I went down there, and like a regular nail just wouldn't go in. So I don't even know what you call them. They look almost like a peg. And like they pound them into concrete sometimes. Those I couldn't get one of those. But I ended up having to drill into the oak to be able to get nails into the oak to hang the additional deer up. That That's how hard that lumber was mm-hmm. after... 100 plus years of being there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Nick, you were going to say something? Oh, yeah. Uh, just uh, we had we had something very similar on the farm in Ohio when I was growing up, um, except, uh, you know, it was poured concrete floor, but right underneath that floor, um, the concrete floor was actually the top of a hand-dug well that was al- oh. almost as wide around as a cistern. Huh. And so there was this concrete... Uh, manhole cover essentially that you could remove and then you could bucket out water um and uh, and it was plumbed up and it had a had a pump in there um but yeah all the all the native rock around the yeah. whole 
pole structure. Um, yeah. It was earth bermed on, on three different sides. That was the whale house. Very cool. Uh, let's see. Unless anybody's got anything else on that one, let's go on to our next one. we got Rachel saying, what is anybody doing to winterproof their wicking beds? So I, I, we, I've run wicking beds up here for about three years, and I've done zero. <laughs> Just let, I mean, and if it's going to freeze and split anywhere, it would be here. But I've never had – I mean, I use that four-inch perforated – sewer pipe and I'm sure yeah. there's enough expansion room in there and if it's going to freeze it'll come out through there but I've never had any issues with anything happening to it uh, I, all of mine are flow through so they have water flowing into them and out of them and then I have a media excluder which is a big piece of pipe going down to the pipe that sets the level and all I do in winter is I shut the water to them off because they don't need it and I pull the overflow standpipe out so it drains and it's not a wicking bed. Now it's just a, a planter sitting there. And the stuff that I have that makes it through winter, winter has low enough irrigation requirements that it's a planter. It, it just lives. So like my perennials, like I have some that I grow uh, lemon balm in and some that I grow bee balm in and some that I grow comfrey in and stuff like that. And they just live through it. And then there's no flowing water and then there's no there's not enough water there to create some sort of expansion and, and rupture of the container. That's what I do. Same. And you built my bed, so they're just like yours. They're just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just pull the pipe out and yeah. the drain goes down. Like, it's it's that simple. And it, when you do that, take the pipe you pulled out and just, like, set it right there. Yeah. Don't, or you don't, don't put it away. Don't put it away. It lives in the bed. And then when it, spring comes... Then you want to turn it back out, and you just shove the pipe back in and turn the water back on. Yeah. In fact, I run the pump because the pump recirculates in the ponds wherever I have these, and I just have a cutoff valve, and I just cut off the delivery side. So that pump's still circulating water, keeping the pond from freezing solid. Um, when it gets cold enough, if it gets cold enough to where the pump's going to freeze up, I just shut all the pumps off, and then the fish live under the ice because they, they're not making any waste, and the water's cold, and when it thaws back out, turn the pumps back on, and the fish are happy. That's that's what I do. I do use a stock tank heater in mine, and keep I keep the ebb and flow running. So that's the one you for me. To. But that's thirty six degree water at that point. Because that actually it probably wouldn't freeze solid, but you'd be pushing it. Yeah. We have what half of IBC in the ground for you. Yeah. Half yeah. of IBC halfway in the ground, so you're yeah. eighteen inches in the ground. Mm-hmm. I had last not last year, the year before we had the super freeze. I have an 11-inch deep um, drip pan. I gave one to Nick, too, because I ended up getting two of them. It's only 11 inches deep. It's probably four inches in the ground. It was below – it was single digits for a straight week. And I was like, every fish is dead. They have to be. Like, it has to be an ice cube. When it thawed back out, everything was alive. It left enough unfrozen water that the fish – they were just goldfish, but all the fish, the minnows, everything lived in there. No deaths. Pretty cool. What else we got? Yes. Anybody got anything else on that one before we go on? Just about when you said leave the pipe there with the wicking bed, I don't care what anybody says. If you think you know where you're going to put something for safekeeping, no. come next no. spring, you're not. You're not. I, it's gone. If, Your brain you, cells rot over the winter. If you have, like, hardware that you take out of something and you're like, shit, i got to put it somewhere, put it in a Ziploc bag, take a piece of tape, and tape it right to it. Because yeah. I... I do it with snow brushes every year. I'm like, I'm going to put them here. I know where they are. And, you no, know, 
No, they're, I don't know where they go. They go the Winter same gnomes. Yep, Winter exactly. gnomes come and they steal your shit and they hide it and they relocate it. They steal your all your winter shit. They yep. steal your toenail clippers, your uh, tweezers, <laughs> and your Sharpie markers. The yep. winter gnomes steal all that shit. They yep. cannot be trusted. I have um, a two-inch plug with a hose bib into it that I used to blow out my return lines on my aquatic systems. I have one for every system. It lives right there. Right. Like, and if anybody touches it, they're in trouble, including the, <laughs> the gnomes. It stays there. It doesn't go anywhere else. It stays there. It can't break. It's a piece of plastic. The hose bib thing stays open all the time. And I take my compressor, and I just hook a hose up to it and blow the return lines out to get the gunk out of them. Leave your shit where – if it only gets used in one place, just leave it there. Because you'll never remember where you put it, ever, ever. I'm not sure what this question is from uh, Hose. What temp did the cell get? I think that might have to do with the seller. Was that? Oh. Your seller. Nothing oh, yeah. ever froze. Nothing. Like, I never went down there and, like, to get a jar of canned stuff and had it frozen up. And it was freaking brutal cold central Pennsylvania in the 1980s. I mean, we, you know, that was when Time Magazine still said we were going to have an ice age and shit like that. And <laughs> I, I never saw stuff freeze up down in that cellar. Now, this was. It was 80, I would say 80% underground. Like the backside a little bit was above grade, but it was almost 100% below grade. And I don't remember exactly how far down it went, but I know, you know, being a 5'8 teenager, I could stand up down there without worrying about whacking my head. So you're probably six foot in the ground. Yeah, ours was probably only about 60% in the ground. Um, We're in southeast Ohio, and, you know, we would – routinely get down into negative negative temps uh every winter <clears throat> and uh we never had anything freeze no it's amazing what ground does i wish i could dig a hole that's that's my, that's my <laughs> wish is that i could dig a hole that's why nicole's um aquaponic system is in the ground yeah because when david and i were building it i was so excited that i could dig a hole i dug a <laughs> hole just because like yeah you just kept digging i was like, like you're going <laughs> We also learned something. If you cut an IVC in half and you put it in the ground and you're going to fill back around it, put the water in first. Yes. Because as we started to backfill it, it started, it was like, oh, well, let's get the hose. And then it was fine. And I think now if you drained it, it would still be fine because the ground's kind of like solidified in its clay because it's all orange clay that she has. Um, Unfortunately, I have learned that lesson a couple of times on accident that, yes, it can drain and not cave in. Okay. Luckily, there was that much water for the fish. (laughs) On accident. Yeah. So, aquatics, like, two redundancies. One, float valve (laughs) into your sump. Yeah. Two, though, is wherever your pump is that lifts water out of your sump, don't put it on the bottom. Lift it off the bottom for a variety of reasons. One, because they will live in this much water. They will not live in this much water, right? Like, that that doesn't fly. Yeah, the pump's up on a cinder block now, just in case that ever happens again. Tom says, John, predictions and thoughts for the next FOMC meeting? Uh, yeah, I, FOMC meeting's coming up, I think, December 14th or 15th. Um, 
you know, I think everybody expects the 50 basis point move. Uh, right now, the market's rallying. You know, we're going into a, a Santa Claus rally because everybody's excited that the Fed's only raising rates 50 percent, <laughs> uh, 50, 50 basis points. You know, in the past, that was like you'd have the bond vigilantes come out and freak out when that happened. So, um, yeah, I think we'll get I think we'll get a 50 basis point hike. Uh, Jay Powell came out this week and said, I mean, the markets loved what he said, but I, I read it as actually being very negative. He said that they're not only going to stay higher for longer, but he is inclined to think rates have to go up higher than what he thought just in September. So um, I, I think we're headed for higher rates. Although I'll tell you, I mean, it, it's fascinating. The 10-year Treasury today is only at about, I don't know, 3.6 or something. It's, it's come way down. The dollar's come down a good 10% in the last two weeks. So, um, I don't know. Short, short term, I have no idea what's going on. I do think we're going we're gonna to see higher rates in the next year because they have to, they have to squelch inflation. And they're going to do that by raising rates, stopping the, uh, the real estate market, you know, stagnating the real estate market and getting people fired. They, we, we have two too much wage inflation from what their, you know, their concern is. There's too much wage inflation. That's 60% of corporations' cost is, you know, paying employees. So they want to raise rates to uh, slow down the economy, get people fired. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking at the current average mortgage rate in the U.S. right now, 7.82%. And I've been saying part of understanding how screwed we are a couple of months ago was, you know, interest rates were like five, eight, six, two, and everybody was losing their mind. And I'm like, that's like right at what I paid for my first house I ever bought like 30 years ago or 25 years ago, or whatever it was. Like that was normal. John, you remember that? Like a 6% yeah, no, mortgage? I, I paid nine. My, my first, normal, right? that was, my, my, like my first house, I paid 9%. Ugh. That starts to hurt. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm 10 years older than you, so yeah, I, 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 I caught the tail end of that. You got the, 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 the early days of Reagan, late days of Carter, right? So, um, but to me, like a 6% mortgage rate should be, like, think about what you're at. Like, now, we all know it's a scam, but think about it if you were actually borrowing money. So I go to Nick, and I say, Nick, you got lots of money? He goes, yeah, I got lots of money. I go, I want to buy a house. And Nick's like, okay, I'll loan you money to buy a house, and I'll, I'll sign the title over, Nick, so that if I don't pay it back, you take the house. So Nick's like, cool. And then he goes, well, what do I get out of this? I go, well, I'll pay you interest. And Nick goes, well, pre-tell, how much interest do I get? You know, he's starting to count his money here, and I say 2.9%. Nick's about to tell me to go F all the way off to Chicago, right? Like, like I'm not tying up my three hundred grand for 30 years for less than a 3% ROI on it. I'm just not doing that. So paying 6% for 30-year money – if it was actually being tendered, which it's not, that's not out of question at all, right? But seven, now we're heading for 8% right now. I didn't even know it was that high. I haven't checked. I've been out of touch with reality since before the workshop. I, I don't see this being good for the real estate market, John, and I do see a lot of people getting fired. Like, I was telling people at the workshop, elections over, people are getting, and like the next week layoffs just started coming in left and right, not just Elon's. Like, and what I'm seeing people say right now is that this isn't that bad because it's not the price cratering on the houses. It's just that houses aren't selling. And I'm like, it, doesn't it always start like that? First, the houses don't sell. Then the people that have to sell have to cut the price. Then that drives the price down. 
and I, I think we're in deep shit economically from a real estate standpoint right now because the house that I could have bought, <clears throat> let's say I was a standard American family, old man's making seventy grand a year, wife's making fifty, hundred twenty grand combined. The house they could buy two years ago, they can buy about the same. They, they can't buy the same house anymore, even if that house has not gone up in price because the cost on the mortgage is is so much higher. Yeah. I'm less worried about real estate, particularly residential real estate. My biggest concern, I think, where the interest rates are going to hit the most is these zombie companies. You've had companies for 15 or more years that really don't have a business plan. They've been living off of cheap money. They're either able to borrow at extremely low rates or they've been able to raise it in the private equity market, and they don't have a business model. They're not profitable. They, you know, they, And now they're going to have to be paying – Seven, eight, nine, fifteen percent mortgage. You know, if you're if you're in a high yield junk bond kind of company, no one's going to loan you money at three percent anymore. And uh, I I don't know how those guys are going to survive. That's to me that's the most interesting thing. In the next few years, I think uh, we're going to see a lot of those zombie companies get weeded out, which ultimately would be good for the economy, but it could be a lot of short term pain. But don't they employ a lot of people? So when those people yeah. lose their jobs and can't pay for their house that they can't sell. Right. Doesn't that cascade through the real estate market? Yeah. The, I don't think it ever has before, Jack. No. The, you know, never the, 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 it was all fine. It was, it was great. A, a lot of that. Uh, the, the only reason I'm, I'm fairly up, and not, it's not that I'm optimistic. I just, I think the uh, the residential market will get hit the least, right? I think okay. there's still so much office space, right? There's so much. Uh, even brick and mortar retail space that we don't need, right? That's okay, that great. to me. If that's that's really going to blow up. I mean, that it, 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 if something blows up, that would blow up the most. Um, you know, a, a lot of the houses are. I mean, they've been socialized, right? They're owned by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or I, thirty thirty or more percent, maybe forty percent of Federal Reserve's balance sheet is still mortgage-backed securities. So, I mean. I, I see less risk there than commercial real estate, uh, you know, big city office space, all the retail, all those little strip malls and stuff. I, I don't see how they survive. Well, I completely agree on the commercial side. I just think both sides are screwed. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, that I, and, and my thoughts on that too are, you know, if you own your house though and you're not going anywhere, it doesn't matter. Right? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, I don't care personally. I don't care. Like, I, I don't care. It's like COVID. I didn't care. I stayed home anyways. You know. I mean, I owe 150 grand on this place. I I, I don't care what happens to the property value. I please go down so I can pay less taxes. On yeah. It, right. Yeah. But if I had a regular job and I was in this same position where I could get fired, then if I can't pay the mortgage, I still can't pay the mortgage even if otherwise I'm in a good place, right? And then I'm going to have to sell it, and then I'm going to have to sell it maybe not, you know, at exactly what I owe. Like, I could still make I could still make money and exit with, with a profit, but if I have to sell, I have to sell, and that's going to start dragging the price down. I guess that that's, that's my concern for... The millions of people who are about to lose their jobs, because like you said, the goal of the Federal Reserve now is to get four to six million people fired in the next year. I, I, I think that is the goal. I think that's 
you know, screw your mandate for full employment. Now we need to get six million people out of work. Right. On, on top of all the people that aren't in the labor force to begin with, right? We've got 100 yeah. million people that don't want to work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. That's a big number, 100 million. That, that's kind of insane. I think I remember the population of the country being something like 180 million when I was a kid. <laughs> the entire population of the country. So it's half of what used to be the entire population of the country it doesn't want yeah. to work. Uh, their, 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 labor, their labor participation rate is, is big in age, right? So, I mean, they're looking at teenagers, too. You know, 16 to basically 65 is, I think, what they're looking at in that cohort. But still, 100 yeah. million people. You've got about 265 million people in, in the universe, and you've got 100 million of them that don't want to work. That's insane. Because, like, when I was a kid, like, when you were 16, you probably went out and tried to find a job. Yeah, like a part-time 15. job. Like most yeah, of my friends had job. jobs. Like maybe they were shitty little jobs. They worked 15 hours a week, but they had some, you had a job somewhere. Right. Or you didn't get any money. Because when you home, you ask your parents for money, they smacked you. Like, <laughs> what are you asking me for money for? Go get a job, right? Like, right. You yeah, when you, were, when, you were, when you were 15 or 16, you got like a real job, right, where you yeah. got a payroll. Yeah. You know, but before that, you were cutting grass or had a paper route or whatever, you know, did chores for the neighbors. Sure. Mm-hmm. Every lawn I mowed bought two boxes of 22 long rifle. That's that's the way I priced it. Like, <laughs> and that was like a buck a, a buck a box back then. Right? This is how Jack and I are different. <laughs> Every dollar I earned uh, picking strawberries for Smuckers got burnt up in the form of fireworks on on mm. Independence Day. Mm. We both I had my attitude wrong. They were both explosives. They were both, they were both explosives. explosives. Yeah. So, steady presence forms. Can foaming insulation be applied internally from the basement side on an opening to prevent mice from getting into the basement? Product is recommended to be applied at 60 degrees, which would be the temperature in the basement. I mean, mice can eat through it. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, steel wool or some kind of fine wire mesh that you could put in the foam, too, would help a lot. But yeah. mice are so damn persistent. And they'll fit through, you know, I mean, it doesn't take much, but they'll chew through it. I know, I can't remember right now, but I know there are products that they can add to it that'll kind of deter mice from doing it. I can't remember what it is, but it's a chemical. I don't think I'd want to frig with that anyway. I think I'd, I, I think a mechanical barrier of some sort, some sort of wire mesh in there would be a better option, in my opinion. A bucket right below the hole, half full of water, with a cup of cup sunflower seeds on top of the water. Oh yes, or yeah, are you? I, I, love, yeah. <laughs> I discovered how well that worked back when I was doing sprouted sunflower seeds for the birds, and I had this like bucket system. And the first bucket just soaked the seeds overnight, and almost every morning when I dumped that bucket through the one of the holes, there'd be a rat or a mouse or two in the bucket dead because they get in there and then they they can't swim. So. If you got, if you got, if the thing about it, anything when you have a pest, if you have a primary avenue that they're entering, then you have funneled them into a place for death and destruction, you know, or just keep some snakes in your, your basement. I mean, that would be, you know, just a couple bull snakes down there hanging out and you know, it'd be great. Look, Tim's like, uh-uh, no, I live in Canada for a reason. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my face hurts because I don't give up my snakes. Uh, I believe the redneck, tactical redneck, hung 
electrified wires on what he refers to as the rat superhighway goes to our duck coop. Oh and that just stops him entering. Nice. I was like, what are you doing? And he tells me the whole plan. I'm like, that's hilarious. I can hear him. So I'm going to electrocute uh, the rats with a wire. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Moon Park, John, says rechargeable battery manufacturer recommendations still recommend and loop. So, yeah, um, I've got a bunch of different rechargeables that I'm getting ready to test. But uh, until now, my the white Eneloops are still my recommendation. But I will say I just did a price comparison because there's the black Eneloop Pros. Yeah. And even a year or two years ago, they just weren't worth the cost. But the white ones, I noticed the per price, I, I don't have it right here, but I did a show on a little while ago. The per price of the white have come up a lot more than the black have. So it's getting closer to where the professional might be worth the the cost. Anybody else got anything on rechargeable batteries? I just no. bought some of the, the Tenergy. Uh, I haven't tried them side by side to see how much... It, you know, what, what kind of a difference is, but the Tenergy were significantly cheaper. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've got three boys, and they use batteries for things. So um, I keep the end loops in the important things, and we have the Tenergies for, uh, you know, they can put them in their, their, you know, remote control cars and their flashlights that they leave outside. <laughs> And then they accidentally take the batteries out and throw them out or lose them. Or I, I seen a right. video just a little while ago that said there is a white rechargeable battery at IKEA that if it says made in Japan on it, it's quite possibly made in the same factory as Eneloop, and they're about two-thirds cheaper. So something to look into. I haven't done any testing. I have some. So, yeah. It's interesting. So they're like a white label. Yep, exactly. Cool. Rachel says, Nicole, what bait did you use for rats that shouldn't kill what eats the dead mouse? Rachel, I went and found the link for you that is this. It's, this is the Tomcat bait with bromethylene, and that link will take you to where you buy it. We do use that uh, on a cycle here because it's been the year of the rat in the hauler. Hope that helps. And that looks like it says bromethylene, and I think yeah. that's very similar to heparin, which is what most of the rat baits are. And there's the old saying, the poison is in the dose. So you have to think about, yeah. well, how much rat poison is a rat or a mouse going to eat? And the answer is not a lot. So basically the way these toxins work is they're blood thinners. And if you give somebody too much blood thinner, then they bleed out internally. And that's why they almost, like, when you find a rat that dies from this, they kind of mummify because, like, yeah. they completely dump all their blood internally and dry out. We killed a lot of them here. The cats now keep everything in check, but it was so bad when we first moved in that we could not, like, the cats couldn't kill enough rats. The dogs couldn't kill enough rats. And I finally broke down and used a very similar product to the one that Nicole's recommending when I realized this, because that's what I was afraid of. My dog's going to eat the dead rat, and then a dead rat's going to kill the dog. And it, when you do the math, like if you have like a 70 to 100-pound dog, that dog would have to eat, you know, five dozen rats to, 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 to really adversely affect it at all. And it turns out when a rat is mummified, the, the dog might play with it, but they tend for some reason not to eat it. it, it like I would find Charlie throwing a rat 
frisbee, like yeah. with his mouth around and not actually eat it. So I, I stopped worrying about it. And then my rule is, if you find the dead animal, get rid of it. Uh, so unless you want, and then my other thing that I did was to minimize that risk. You get the things, the bait holders that the dogs yep. can't get into, and then put them where the dogs can't get to. Because my dogs can get into anything. So you put it elevated somewhere where the dog doesn't know. And I would run them. So I would put out one with like two sticks in each one. And then I'd come out within about four or five days and there would be no bait in them. And then I would rebate them. And usually it'd come out and there would be like a half a stick left. And then I would stop baiting for a couple weeks. And then I would bait again. And then that way there would only be so much death and destruction at any given time, and I never had any problems. And they will learn to stop eating the bait if you don't do that. Yeah, that too. Ask me how I know. They'll be like, hey, that's that. that. Was summer. Yeah, you got you no, got to get that. And look at Bill now. He's dead. <laughs> I don't know. They pass that on somehow. Eventually they forget again. But Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was friends with uh, a couple professional uh, – um, pest control guys, and I asked them what they do to trap rats and mice. <clears throat> and they used the same exact trap for rats and mice. They'd use uh, the, I think it's Victor Power Snare, that's like an L-shaped snap trap. So the the bar travels half the distance. <clears throat> um, and they're plastic. You screw them down to a board so they don't move. And instead of using bait or poison, they would take cheap, generic, Slim Jim-type meat snacks, and they'd cut them into about a one-inch piece, and they'd take small zip ties, and they'd zip tie the small little one-inch piece onto the, the plate, the, the trigger plate. And they'd set the trap, and, um, you know, in nature, fat is hard to come by. And so these rats and mice, they'd smell the fat, and they'd come and just kill it. And they would catch them, and they'd catch them, and they'd catch them, and they'd catch them. Um, and the nice thing with that is, you know, um, they couldn't just sit there and lick the peanut butter off very gingerly and not trip the the trap. They'd, uh, they'd start licking on that thing, and they'd grab it, and they'd pull it, and it wouldn't come off, and so they'd try and pull it again, and pow, they'd get them. And just I like had socialism. so much success. Just like yeah. socialism, yeah. the free slim gym just like. costs you your entire life and freedom. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so Ron says, thoughts on getting started reloading ammo. Is it worth it? Well, that's what it depends. John, you like to reload. What do you say? I do. Yeah, I don't know if it's worth it from a straight economic standpoint, especially if you're paying yourself labor but the, I think the important reason to do it is, one, it makes you more, um, you know, independent, knowledgeable, because even if you, um, you know, even if you can't buy ammo, you, you could configure other ammunition to work in what you have, right? So if, yeah. I had, if I had nine millimeter rounds, I could make them work in a 38 special, right? If, if my gun was a 38 special, but I had nine millimeter rounds. Um, so, I mean, from that standpoint, I think it's worth it. But more importantly, you know, I reload for what I can't buy, right? So so mm-hmm. I, it's economical for me because what I reload is priceless because you can't get it. You, you know, you, you can make um, light loads that you can't find anywhere else. You can make special loads. 
um, I would definitely encourage anybody that has an interest in it to, to get into it and uh, start small. But definitely, you'll you'll you know it's like growing a garden, right? You're gonna you may not save on money on growing a tomato, but the tomato you grow will taste better than what you're gonna buy at the grocery store. So same thing with ammunition. Yeah, I agree, and I, I would add to it like sometimes it's not what you can't get, but what what is very expensive. Like I love shooting the forty five seventy. Um, this is just the first box of ammo I could find in forty five seventy. It's sixty four ninety nine. Uh, no, I'm not spending sixty five dollars a box for if it's fifty BMG, okay. But like forty five seventy is incredibly easy to reload. It's incredibly cheap. It costs no more to reload 4570 than it does 3006. Right? So if I can go out and buy a box of yellow and green Remington 3006 for 18 bucks, maybe I can't reload for much less than that. But 4570, even though I can buy it, even though it's readily available, it's incredibly expensive. Um, the thing I don't own, and I really should, except Lee doesn't make one, so I have to spend real money to buy one, is a uh, shotgun reloading press for 410. Because 410 is another example of it is it is stupid what a box of 410 shells are. You know, you can buy I, – I don't buy a lot of ammo anymore because I have so much and I do reload. But, I, you know, I remember buying a box of 8-shot, 5 bucks, you know, maybe 6 bucks, and 410 being like $17 a box for 410 for less shot, less powder, smaller – like just because it was specialty. And they don't sell the volume of it, so that's part of it. And like you said, being able to load things that you uh, you can't buy, you just can't buy at any price, uh, like squib loads for a forty four magnum. I feel like the local prepper network could solve your problem with that. So, if you all go in on the thing that's more expensive and it travels mm-hmm. around, then you can solve that problem without buying it all by yourself. Yeah, I can't see sending a mech. <laughs> the, the ultimate reason. Out. <laughs> the ultimate reason why it doesn't save you any money is because you just shoot more, though. That's the problem. So, but that's a good problem to have. That's a price per unit thing, though. That's a good thing because you have yep. more shooting, so you can do more yep. shooting. But yeah, like the, the the specialty loads that you can do, or like the other thing. When I got into reloading, I brought I bought dies for everything I own. and now I have a lot of reloading dies that I probably should sell on eBay or something because I don't. Reload. Um, I don't reload 22 Hornet. You know, I don't reload a lot of things that I don't shoot that much. But 308 and 3006, which I hunt with, I have my own custom hand loads that I use for hunting that shoot more accurately than anything I can buy. And then, you know, like 44 Mag, 357 Mag. Those, like, those are my fun rounds. I love to shoot, and there's, and I, I do think you save money on those. I, I really do. Anybody else? Bingus hmm? bang for. I also own some, you know, old guns. I own some old guns from the nineteen, you know, nineteen fifties and earlier, and you just can't get that stuff anyways. You know, it's it. Go out and find a twenty-five uh, automatic or a thirty-two automatic. You know, you you might be able to find it, but it's just really expensive. So much cheaper to cast that stuff and make it yourself. Yeah, 257 Roberts. I, I don't see that in the stores very often either. Uh, Mr. Kong Global says, best bang for the buck time with preparedness topics. The survival podcast.com. 
You can listen to it while you're doing other things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anything like that. Yes. Audiobooks, too. I mean, anything that you can, uh, you know, do while you're doing something else, multitask is, yeah. is great. I wonder, though, is he asking that or is he asking more like what oh. thing to spend your time on? Like food storage versus gardening versus maybe that's the way the question is being asked. I'm not sure. But otherwise, yeah, like listen to my show. <laughs> you have some shows that talk about modern survival that yeah. divide it into categories, food, water, energy, etc. Go back, listen to those episodes, and then audit yourself. What, what, what am I well prepared in and what am I not well prepared in? And, you know, go in order of priority if you're going to spend time somewhere and fill those areas, fill every one of those areas, including financial stability. I think that's the best thing you can do and not worry about, do I need to learn how to store specifically wheat in buckets or do I need, you know, it's, that's a a great place to start if you're new and everybody's going to have a different answer about where they're weak. Yeah. I would kind of add to that. Like if you're, the guy that earns all the money for your family and your wife doesn't work and you have two kids and you're worried about what you should be storing and you have no life insurance, you need to shut up and go get some life insurance because you could die. Like, so think about those pragmatic components to things as well, you know, uh, definitely. Because that's what I see overlooked a lot. Like, I got this and I got a bunker. Like, you got life insurance? No. Okay, so if you die, I guess your wife can sell all this shit. You know, and Jake Robinson will buy it. That's what will end up happening is Jake Robinson will buy your dehydrator or your uh, your freeze dryer if you don't have some way to make sure your family can keep going onward. Anybody got anything else on that one? Yeah, I, I, I would. Uh, it's I'd just say, all about balance, right? You know, yeah. you, you you want you want to make sure you're balanced. Yeah, um, yeah. and yeah. my hand up was just that he elaborated and said he teaches middle school and high school shop and had a couple class periods before the end of the semester what would you teach? And then that would go back to the overview of how to become prepared, I think. I think if you're teaching shop class in high school, I would teach kids how to monetize the skills that you're giving them. That's a good point. That would be a great, you know, like how can you take this and scale this project that we're building? Like I remember when I had wood shop, we had a, uh, you know, everybody builds their own thing, like a spice rack or some stupid shit like that. And then you had like a, uh, a tool-specific project, like we had to do, design, do, build whatever you want, but you have to use a wood lathe. But eventually, in like the second year of shop class, we had a production project where it had to go to like one, like we did a bread box or something, and one guy ran the router, and the next guy cut the routed pieces off the end of the board so they could be made into the pieces because it opened like an old-school um, desk, right? And then one person glued them together. So we had to actually figure out how, how do we make, we have 20 people, how do we make 40 of these this week? And that was an interesting little exercise to, to realize that you could put it into production, like have a Henry Ford-style assembly line going. Nick, you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I really like what Nicole said about, you know, um, assessing where you are. Um you know, if, if the question was what what is the, the best bang for my time invested in um, being more prepared, then, um, you know, thinking through common everyday 
what if scenarios? Um, what if I lost my job? You know, do I have enough? Do I have enough just regular food in my pantry to to get my family through till the next possible paycheck? You know, that's one of those really simple everyday need things. Uh, what if there's a, a, a boil advisory? Um, do I have any kind of water filtration? The, that is, that's one of the number one things I see people overlook. They take for granted clean, drinkable water. Um, that is always my number one thing I tell people, you need to get squared away first. Before anything else, have a way to filter water. Um, have some food. Uh, yeah, those those are the, the big ticket items that, that they don't take that much time. Um, most people can do it. Um, you know, like, like Nicole, you had the, the, the cheap version of, of a Berkey. You need a spigot, you need two food grade buckets, and you need at least one gravity filter element. You can use Berkey, you can use other filter elements. Have several of them in backup. Just something that you could filter water is probably the most life-changing thing for the most people, for the most ordinary disaster-type scenarios. Just the power is out. There's a, a, a whiteout, and, and there's brownouts, and, you know, the water system gets messed up. That'll, that'll mess you up if you don't have water. Yeah. yeah. I would say the thing we've used the most over the years from our preps is water and a generator. Yep. Right. Because we're on. We've been on a well for as long as we've been here, before here, and before here. So we've been on a well for 15, 20 years now. And so power's out, water's out. So having water stored, water filtration capability, both of those, and then a generator. Because to me, like I don't want to like sit in my house in sweat in August. I don't want to do that. That sucks. That's the exact same thing. That's the exact same uh, results that I've. I've come across is is power and and water. Yep. yep. Two is one, one is none. You can go sit in your pool. And that's all the most common things, you know. Like you said, power and water. I mean, when you ask what the most the best bang for your buck is, it's the things that are most likely to happen. We've heard that many times before. Yeah, you'll need more water than you think as soon as you start doing dishes, washing your face, washing your hands, cooking, you know, giving the baby a bath, what have you. Uh, John, any chance you'll be putting together a new list of beaten up good companies for long-term investment? Yes. Yeah, I want to wait until we get into January, February of this new year and see where the earnings estimates actually come out at. I think right now corporate profits are still estimated way too high. But I think um, I think over the next four months we'll probably see a nice pullback and a buying opportunity. And, yeah, absolutely, I'll be looking at uh, – because, again, I'm not, I'm not looking for the zombie apocalypse here, economic um, collapse. I'm looking for an opportunity to buy good things at a, at a reasonable price. And uh, as we get into this next recession, depending upon how deep it is, there will be some great companies on sale. And, you know, there always are. So, yeah, and, and, and even to, to do that yourself, too, look at, look at what a company is earning, what they're expected to earn in the future – and you can simply do the math at, at what that, you know, what the valuation is of the stock then, and you can you can just easily extrapolate it and say, you know, 
you know, Amazon's not going out of business probably, and you know their 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 price has been cut in half. That's probably a good time to buy Amazon. You, you're, so what it sounds like you're saying is buy the blood, not the bleeding. Wait till the blood stops. Like like right now they're bleeding, but there's more blood to come. So let the let them bleed, and the ones that look like they're still keeping their color and their face, like we'll bet on those guys to live. Uh, but but there's going to be more pain before there's gain. Right, and and I think the problem with where we're at, particularly right now, is every, everybody's all enthusiastic that the Federal Reserve is going to pivot and you know stop raising interest rates. I, I don't think that's going to happen, and that again is going to really affect corporate profits. We're going into next year with corporations having to pay a lot more for employees and have to bar, pay more to borrow money. Right, the two things that cost them the most, labor and the cost of capital. And both of those are, are, have been going up and are still going up. And that's going to hurt corporate profits. Ultimately, prices on stocks are derived from profitability of the company. So there will be fantastic companies that will have a lower price sometime in the future. Right? I mean, again, you know, Apple probably not going out of business. Amazon probably not going out of business. Um, those are the kind of companies you want to buy when they're really beat up, but not now that they're back up to. Well, we're still well off record highs, but I think they're I think they're way too expensive based on where profits are likely to end up next year. But you know what? I I'm optimistic about 2024 because it's an election year and everything's going to be great, right? The current administration is going to pump everything back up and, and want to get reelected. So. I, I think we maybe have a really bad year next year, and then it'll be good again in 24. Anybody else got any thoughts on that as far as uh... – and, and, and I'm being sarcastic, obviously, about the, uh, about the good times in 24, but they're going to portray them that way, right? I mean, it's, it, the Democrats are not going to go into an election year in 2024 with, um, with any worse of an economy than they have to have. Right, they're going to pull out all the stops to make things better in 2024, even if it's just for three months before the election. All right, so the next one up is a 401k IRA type question. Any options for an IRA that holds Bitcoin and other assets? Got a 401k that is ending and need to move it, uh, but I want at least some of it in Bitcoin. I did an episode that's on Bitcoin breakout. I'm going to bring it up on the screen right here in just a second uh, with choice uh, that you can you listen to. And it's on the bitcoinbreakout.com forward slash sovereign hyphen retirement. And choice is one of several companies that do uh, IRAs. And you can either self-custody or use multi-sig. There's different options they have. Um, you can use a self-directed IRA if you want to and hold Bitcoin to get it into things like did you fill the forms out right and what have you, so it may not be worth the small fee that a custodian would charge to manage the account even if you self-custody the Bitcoin. Um, I do not know of a really good, solid IRA that gives you all the options within IRAs and gives you the ability to hold Bitcoin. So, John, you can speak to this maybe better than me, but in my personal opinion, you may be better off with an IRA for your conventional investments and an IRA to hold your you know, Bitcoin or other crypto in. 
Yeah, for somebody that wants to have their coins, the only way I know of how to do it would be to have your own self-directed, you know, where you're totally taking charge of your IRA. If, if you're self-employed, you can do that with a 401k as well. I don't know if any corporations are going to let you do that. But yeah. um, I'm also not opposed to the institutionalized side of Bitcoin for someone that wants to go with Grayscale, um, you know, GBTC, Fidelity now has the, I think there's this called. Well, I'm going to disagree with you there, dude. BTC. F away from Grayscale. I mean, I think they're tied in with FTX, and I, I would just run my ass away right. from that. <laughs> I, I would. Well, I, and, I, the, and the only, the only. Yeah, the only reason I, I, I say the, the grayscale thing is their their parent companies tied into all this stuff, but yeah. I guess depending upon who you believe, supposedly grayscale's Bitcoin all is being held at Coinbase. You know, in that yeah. they don't have custody of it. It's all at yeah. Coinbase. Coinbase is the custodian and and so I will tell you what I'll tell you why I like Grayscale, okay? And I don't own any, right? Full disclosure, I don't own yeah. any. But if, if, I, if I was, right now, Grayscale is trading for about a 40, because of, the, because of the very reasons you're talking about, people are worried about Grayscale. So yeah. they're trading at about a 40% discount, right? So if, in fact, that those coins are being custodiad at, uh, at Coinbase, and if Grayscale either becomes a, an ETF someday, okay, right now the problem with them is that they're a closed-end trust. So they're not marked to market. If they yeah. if if the SEC would allow an ETF, then they would be marked to market, and they're not. They're, they're closed end, and so they're trading at a discount, and it, yeah. and the discount now is about forty percent. So my, my in theory, you could buy them at a discount. It's never not been at a discount. Like it's never realized value. So no, no, they, if you could convert to an ETF, that would. But they be were at a premium. Yeah. They were at a premium. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a chart. They used to be at, actually at a, at a pretty good premium at one time. Um, okay. So uh, the, the theory is, though, if they do go, if 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 Genesis goes bankrupt, whose same parent company is Grayscale, then they have potentially have to liquidate Grayscale to cover uh, Genesis. Yeah. But but again, that's just to get their money out of it. So yeah. they still have to return the money to all the to all the shareholders. Yeah. In which case, you get the forty percent back. It's a risk, right? I mean, it, it, to me, it's all a risk, though, right? I mean, I, I think, I think it's all a risk. But I, I wouldn't, and I'll tell you, I, I'm shorting Bitcoin now, right through through Bitty B I T I. It's it, it, it trades. Um, you can do it through any any discount stock broker, either Bitto to be long Bitcoin or B I T I to be short it. The advantage to to these these Bitcoin funds that trade. On, on options contracts, it, unlike gold or something where you maybe have to actually take possession of the gold or, you know, warehouse the gold or have security for gold, Bitcoin's digital, right? There's, there's really no, yeah. there's no, nothing to physically handle. So the, so something like Bitto is actually a very low cost way to trade Bitcoin, right? Not, not against, not going to 100% meet it. And obviously you're not going to have your keys, yeah. but if you want to go long or short, for short periods of time, I like Bitto and Biddy. I think they're. I, I would just add with the 401k IRA type thing, like options like choice, you can still self custody. So what they have is visibility into your account. They do all the reporting, but you hold your own keys. So if you wanted to take your money out, 
you could. There's nothing they can do to stop you. But they're going to report to the government there was a withdrawal from this this IRA. So that there's no there's no impediment at this point to full self custody. You can also do multi sig, which means you have two keys, and you need two to unlock. So you have both, and you can keep them in separate places. And your custodian keeps one. So if one becomes lost, you can still re- recover. So you can have like you can keep one of your keys at your house and one of your keys at your office. If somebody got a hold of them, they can't do anything. And Multisig does that whether it's IRA or not. And if Nick was my custodian of my third key, he has one key. He can't do jack shit with it. But I can go, hey, Nick, I need my key. He says, prove you're jack. I prove I'm jack. He gives me that key. I take one of my keys, and I can unlock my Bitcoin. So that, that, that's, a, that's a different thing. But it is part of the way you can self-custody within a, an IRA. So you can self-custody, hold your keys, have control of your Bitcoin and still get the sheltering of an IRA. All right. Two more and we're going to have to wrap. Autumn Dawn says, thoughts on the new rule reporting over $600 in sales at yard sales, Etsy, Craigslist, et cetera. Is that per transaction or overall? What yard sale? I don't make any money. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, the Venmo one, they will send you a statement. So the, the reporting requirement comes from the way that that's going to be noticed is the payment processors that you use for what used to be sort of cash-like transactions yeah. are sending you a statement saying, this is how much money total, I don't believe it's per transaction, but I haven't gotten my first statement, so I don't really know, that you spent. And is it a schedule, is it 1099? I think it's a 1099 they're sending you, but uh, I haven't dug into it. I just know I'm going to get one. You need to look through that and make sure it's accurate because if they include a re- – like, say, Jack and I went out to dinner. What it has these, he paid, I then mowed him half, my half. If they've included that in your total – in his total revenue, then then he needs to say, hey – Venmo, update the statement because it's incorrect. And then if they don't, he has to submit to his tax, with his taxes, an explanation of why specific transactions included in that document were not, in fact, income. So that's how I understand the process works after kind of digging into it because with my companies, things that come over from PayPal, for example, I'm already reporting as income through my company. And so if I get a 1099 PayPal, I have to be able to justify the couple of things on PayPal that have nothing to do with anything. Yeah, I, I, I think they're going to send you one a year. I think you're going to get one 1099 at the end of the year. I think it's going to be one 1099, and then you have to get them to correct it if there are reimbursements in there. Yeah, yeah I, and, and to, well, to that point, too, you keep you got to keep all your receipts because, um, I mean, even if, you, even if it is a sale of a product, you probably have a cost into that product because you didn't get it for free. So... So there's a there's a threshold right now, and this all goes back to the Patriot Act when the merchant account providers started doing the 1099Ks, and it's over a certain number of transactions or a certain total, and that's been in place since Bush was still president. So every year I get a 1099K from Strike. I get a 1099K yeah. from PayPal, and that's that's business income, so that's reported. Now, what do I do with those 1099Ks? I'm like, oh, that's nice, and I rectify them against my own books, but I do not the way that people take their W-2s or they're a small independent contractor and they have one 1099 and they put it in their taxes and send it in, 
We don't do that. I provide my account and my income statement. And if there's any question about that, then my account writes a letter and says it was included. Because in, sometimes we'll get a 1099 from a company, and, it, and it, that revenue is duplicated right. on the 1099K in PayPal. And we just send them a letter and say it's, it's, it's duplicate, it was covered, and I've had to write that letter, or my accountant's had to, have to write that letter a few times, and we stopped getting that letter. I don't know if they've made a note on our extortion account or what. The people I see this being a pain in the ass for will be people that either don't have a business or, like, let's say Nicole uses Venmo for personal shit, not for business in Strike or straight PayPal or Stripe or whatever to receive into the business. And now all of a sudden, I think what the new rule says is individual transactions in excess of $600. So I don't know that you'll get the kind of 1099K that you get from PayPal using them as a merchant provider. What you might get is some kind of like, here's all your transactions in excess of $600. That's how I read it, but I'm not sure yet. Yeah, we're, we're all about sure because we haven't gotten one yet. Yeah, no one really knows. You have to wait till they pass it to see what's in it, you know, until they send you a letter, right? But I... I think it's going to be more of a pain in the ass for things like you said. Like, we go out to an expensive dinner, and, you know, we take the whole family out, and Nick and I split the bill, and it's a $1,200 bill, and Nick sends me $600. Bucks. What's the deal yeah. with $600? Bucks? Well, we would split the price. I think that can be avoided a lot, too, though, because you just – if you're in that situation, just split the check. Just bring us two checks, and we'll both pay our own check. Right, right. But will they ask about money out, not just in? Where'd this go? Well, it went to freaking Gloria's Latin Cuisine. Go ask them. I don't know. This seems like one of those things that it's probably less trouble than we're making it out to be, even though it's bad. It's, 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 there, it's there to prosecute you when they want to get you. Yeah. 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 Well, and the other thing is it's a pain in the neck for people who haven't had to report non-W-2 income before. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, no that's I remember my it. first year as a 1099 contractor, I tried to do my taxes by myself, couldn't figure it out, lost my mind, was going to have to pay a bunch of money, and then I paid $600 to an accountant who made that all go away. Yes. Yeah, that's hey, not, 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 not to worry, though, when we get the, um, the uh, CBDC, you won't have to worry about any of that. It'll all be reported. Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so final question before we wrap up. Mr. Connable, what would you teach middle school students if you had a couple class periods with them? I think we answered Access that. Theft. <laughs> Critical <laughs> thinking. <laughs> Critical sure. thinking. Lesson one, explain how taxes theft with critical thinking. <laughs> Practical life skills, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, money skills. Uh, you know, anything, just practical life skills, anything they don't teach in school, because that seems to be the complete opposite of what my kids learn, that's for sure. Well, how to start, how to learn things that you want to learn, rather than be afraid of learning things that you want to learn. By which I mean, like, how, how many people how do I to talk develop, to who are how, like, how to develop I have skills. A, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a presser canner, I've had it for five years, I've never presser canned anything, because I'm afraid it's going to explode, like, that mindset is what we tend to teach our kids is not to start because you need to be afraid of it. And the majority of the time you just need to start and figure it out. I agree with everything that's being said, but I'm just having this vision of being Mr. Spierko with a pointer and a chalkboard and this whole class of kids that are like in fourth or fifth grade 
going as I go across the board. Everything the state says is a lie. <laughs> everything that it has, it has stolen. Again, class, everything like <laughs> and watching like a principal walk into that. That's that's my dream now to, to have that moment in my life. I mean, I would say some of the best lessons I had in government schools were when we were assigned topics to debate each other, no matter what our opinion was. They just assigned you your opinion, and learning how to dig down and make those arguments mm. was helpful. And it also is probably what started me down the journey of realizing that everything that happens in politics is a lie. Everything. <laughs> everything. I think he's a good guy. Probably not. We had, uh, for debate, we had to get the issue and then show up to debate, but you didn't get told what side of the debate you had until five seconds before the debate. Yeah. So you had to be prepared to take either side of the debate. And some of them were like ones were like not even political or anything, just like I don't know how I'm going to debate the other side. Like I remember one that I had, unfortunately I got the good side, which was, should we wear seatbelts in cars? And somebody actually had to try to make the case that it was bad to wear seatbelts in cars. And and they got to debate me, too. That was fun. <laughs> and I got the good side. Because like, I, I, I really can't make – like, it wasn't should there be a law requiring you. Yeah. Because then I could come up with all kinds of, like, you, you're free to die if you want to. But, like, it was literally should you – wear a seatbelt in the car while you're driving down the road. And it it wasn't – the guy tried to make cases about being, like, hung in the suit, the seatbelt. I felt bad for him because it was, like, that's the shitty side of the debate. But I thought that's – In the car fight. underwater. Yeah, yeah, that was one of his – you could be in the water and stuck in the seatbelt. And, yeah. you know, it was just the vast majority of times when you're in a wreck, seatbelts save your life versus they don't. What else would be another shitty side of a debate to get? Flat earth. Flat Earth. You have to say it's flat. I still have people that want that debate, Nicole. I really want that debate too. The guy ran away. I know. He ran, and then people always go, "You should debate." Like, like, okay, we'll debate me. And they're like, "No, go debate this, you know, flat card over here." No, he's not the one bothering me. You are. He doesn't want to debate me. Doesn't want to debate me. He ran away. He said we were trying to make him submit to our authority. Yes. We were asking him to submit his questions for the debate. I was asking him to submit his questions so that, yeah. Because the idea was I would submit five questions for the debate, he would submit five questions for the debate, and Nicole would source five questions from outside, yeah. and then that would get randomized in the questions. And I wouldn't know if I got mine first or second or whatever. And well, and you would know who the other questions were. Yeah. Both of you would. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we would in advance know the questions so that we could be prepared. It was like I tried to be fair. Maybe that was the problem. Yeah. He wanted to have a yelling contest. I didn't he, want to have a yelling contest. He realized he was going to lose. Bad. Hey, my my, rec my recommendation on education is you teach people to be exceptional at what they're already good at. Mm, you know, I like that. Ra rather than rather than putting every kid in a in a chair or an adult for that matter, and making them learn how to do all things, right? And we're all different individuals. We learn differently. We have different talents and abilities. If you focus on what you're already good at and become the best at it then you're going to make more money and have a happier life than if you improve at what you're bad at. And that's, you know, that's what I would put your efforts. Figure out what you're good at, what you like to do, and let those kids run at it. And it's that whole self-discovery. Like, Nicole, you talked about learning how, to, learning how to know more. 
right? Find out what you, how, how do you find out what you're good at and then be better at it and, instead of worrying about things you, you know, I'm a lousy speller, right? I, but I don't have an English degree, right? I, I don't need to have to spell. I have spell check. You know, it, it doesn't matter that I can't do those things. I don't make any money at that. So, some, you know, somebody else can worry about those things. Isn't that's that not where I'm going to make money. When, when you, you're spelling so bad, spell checks like, I don't know what you want. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I got to ask my wife. That's what I ask my wife. How do you spell, you know? It doesn't matter, though. I'm not paid to spell, right? No. So it does, it's irrelevant. I mean, it's good. It's good to be well-rounded and educated, but you make money and you prosper based on doing what you're better than everybody else at. Yeah. And that's that's the beauty the of the top, economy. You're the top, the top tier of that thing, right? You know, yeah. If you like, can just I'm not going to be a better than average singer. I'm not. We all we, anybody that's been to my workshops knows I, I'm I'm not going to not going to sing. Some people can are very good artists and they can draw. I can't draw. Right. You can give me every art class on the planet and I might learn to look at a picture and go, uh, that is from the 17th century and it was done by whoever and he held the the brush in his mouth sideways when he painted it and you can tell because like I might be able to do that with art but I'm not going to make the painting. And so how many things are there like that we try to force kids? John's right. We try to force kids to, like, become really good at algebra. I don't need algebra, you know. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But, like, the ones that have the predisposition, like, they should go in on what they have, like, a passion and a talent for. Yep. That's a secret to life. I saw a great big debate about um, homeschooling today on Twitter and how, like, you know, we have no business homeschooling our kids because we ha- we're not we haven't been trained in the science of education. I have. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree in that. Oh, that I mean, was actually the coolest thing. The people that that most slapped down the original post were prior teachers. Yeah. Like, I, well, actually, I was a teacher and I quit because you're wrong. Right. You know. You know. Anybody, anything else on that, Nick? I was just going to say, <clears throat> case in point, uh, you know, from a young age, I was able to focus on what I was best at. Um, and that's why I'm able to do what I do now. Because, I mean, I started focusing, laser focused on on ecology when I was, I don't know, four, five, six years old from the very start of my more formal education. That's what I was focused on. My parents recognized that I had an aptitude, and they focused on that. Now, they focused on a lot of other things, but everything got tied back into my aptitude. And, you know, even when I was going to college, man, I would spend more time in self-study on the things that... um, were interesting to me that I had aptitude in, and and I, I found out not too long into college that uh, this is all a big waste of time. I should just focus on what I'm best at, and so I did, and here I am. But, yeah, but Nick, 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 think where you'd be if you focused on gender studies. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <clears throat> you know what? I I might have been so successful that I could be. Making lattes at Starbucks, but with different pronouns. 
but with different. So you would have different pronouns if you had done that, or at least the need to tell people what they are. You know, um, on the, this whole thing, one of the things that really put us at ease when we started homeschooling grandkids was we talked to Mike and Sue Laprise, and Sue said, "There is nothing that you can make you can do to make a child learn a thing they have decided they don't want to learn." Truth. And there exactly. is nothing you can do to prevent a child from learning a thing they have decided that they do want to learn. Nothing you do, yep. lock them in a room, they'll tap out Morse code to their sibling, and they'll find the information. <laughs> you will not prevent them from learning what they want to learn. So the key is to encourage them to learn, period. And then have a little bit of fatalism and just go, look. If this kid does not want to be really great at calculus, then nothing you ever do will change that. And even if you did, like, because there is something to, like, like, when I go to, like, my niece's graduation and of the 20 top kids in her, her school with a graduating class of, like, 1,200, like, 19 of the 20 are Asian, okay, I'll give you there's something to the Tiger Mom thing, then there has to be, Right. But that doesn't mean that that kid's actually going to excel with that skill. That just means they got the number, whatever, they're out. Because I've also seen kids that are under that kind of authoritarian parental regime. What is the first thing that happens when they leave home? They go freaking nuts. They go off the reservation all the way. They end up going crazy, you know, because they never had any freedom. And so I, I, I'm with you, John. Teach them what – make them better at what they're already good at. Titus is going full tilt bore with uh, with learning coding. He is taking um, <laughs> he's taking college level courses in coding right now. And how old is he? For those that don't he's know, he's eleven. Eleven. That's so great. He's going to get good at math because if you're going to do coding, you're going to need math. So he'll go learn the math on his own because he'll need math for the yeah. coding. Because he wants to. He yeah. needs it. It's it's for the thing that he loves and wants to do. And so he's just going to absorb it and learn it. Ten times as fast as someone could, just being forced to regurgitate information. I thought Amy Dingman did one of her best segments ever, and I think it was in October when she said, there's a big world out there. And when she looked back at homeschooling her boys and they were messing around on instruments at home, she didn't know at the time that they would end up making money performing music. But that's what's happening right now. And you just don't know. And if you bring what your opinion of what they should do in, that's not the best way to guide your child through through developing uh, into a functional adult. So I, I that I mean that segment should be played once a month or something. It was really yeah, it was expanding your world, expanding yeah. your world for your homeschooler. I mean, yeah. is anybody here doing exactly what your parents would have said you should be doing when you were, let's say, ten years old? No, I know I'm not. <laughs> not at all. Because what I do didn't exist, right? There was no podcast in 1981. <laughs> I think, right? Like, yeah, I, I just could see, like, when I was a teenager, if I had told my father, like, basically my dream is to grow up and be a talk show host. Right, like, that would have been, like, this the most ridiculous thing I could have come up with. And I would have thought it was ridiculous. That's the other thing. I think, like, this whole idea that kids need to figure out what they want to do with their life when they're 15 years old. If a kid knows, because some do, and God yeah. bless them, I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm like, you're going to give me a gun and let me jump out of airplanes and, and, do, and like, go hang out in the jungle? Yeah, I'll join the Army. Like, and it was because I precisely didn't know what I wanted to do. 
And then I came back to the world, and I was like, I want to be, I want to have money. So I guess I need to go into business and sales and marketing. And I was really good at it. I made a bunch of money. I was like, this sucks. I hate my life. And so I think, like, life is a constant journey. So teach them to learn, and they'll figure it out as they go. We, I had another guy, and I can't remember his name, Travis, something or other years ago, and he said, humans learn what they need to learn when they need to learn it. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Go, go read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and see all the things he did in his life. I mean, he did amazing things in his life and mediocre things. He, was a, he thought at one time he was going to be a swimming instructor and open up a school to teach people how to swim, right? Benjamin Franklin. God, God did so many different things. Whatever he was interested in, he did, and he learned how to make – he monetized it. That was the trick. He, he, he educated himself and monetized it. I think he did that when actually he was in Europe or London or somewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, but that was – I mean, okay. like the guy, the, the guy did all kinds of different things, though, right? Amazing. Absolutely. That, I, you know, I've never read his autobiography. I should read that. Uh, guys, let's go around the Great. horn one time here and tell everybody who you are and how to find out more about you. Okay, well, I'm Nicole Soss from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast <coughs> and Holler Roast Coffee, and it's Christmas season, so Holler Roast makes a great gift, and you get an MSB discount. Um, if you've got questions about just pantry management, small business startup things, food preservation, anything like that, shoot them over to me, and I'll get them on the Expert Council shows. I'll go next. Uh, Toolman Tim. You can uh, find me three times a week, live, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. I uh, run the workshop podcast. You can come by on the YouTube channel, Tool Reviews, toolmantim.co, and I launched the Patch of the Month Club about three months ago, and it's going off like gangbusters. So if you like those two-by-three morale patches, 10 bucks a month, $100 a year, you get a politically incorrect, rather humorous, you know, kind of patch every single month. And there's rarely a month goes by I don't throw something else in the package when it comes out to you. Yeah, I'm Nick Ferguson. Um, I've got two websites, Homegrown Liberty and, uh, and RarePlantStore.com. Um, I do ecosystem engineering, permaculture, design consulting all over the U.S., internationally. Um, I do distance consulting. And I sell bare root trees and plants, uh, especially fodder trees. So, uh, you know, if you've heard me talk about those, you've probably heard that I sell them at Rare Plant Store. And uh, coming into this next year and in the future, we'll be adding more and more edibles and really cool rare plants. Um, I've got a lot of stuff um, coming up on that. I'm John Pagliano. I have an uh, independent money management firm. I have a podcast called uh, The Wealth Setting Podcast. If you're a do-it-yourselfer, you can listen to what I talk about on there and how I manage my money. Uh, you can always hire my firm to uh, potentially manage your money. Check me out, investablewealth.com. And, of course, folks, I am Jack Spierko, and I'll throw my little uh, plug-in here at the <clears throat> end where you guys can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, if it's on there, that means I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, I'll do it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today's item of the day is the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder, and it's as good as it sounds. Um, this grinder, I, I went on a quest about 2017 to find a great grinder, 
and I was going to buy a Cabela's Carnivore for like $500, and that really hurt my back pocket where I keep my wallet, and I didn't like spending that much money, uh, considering I do heavy grinding about twice a year and a little bit here and there monthly. And I found this one, and it I would put it this way. It embarrasses anything out there under $300, and it's about 160 bucks. And it is that time of year for making yummies. So let's go ahead and uh, give you advice on that. You can find everything I recommend at tspaz.com. Of course, you can find the show at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in today. And, guys, thanks, guys and gal, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It was fun.